We noted in our talk through uh, Ephesians that there were uh, three different um, metaphors for the church in the book of Ephesians. Um, and we've spent all of our time talking about the body. The metaphors are the body. Then there's another one in Ephesians where he talks about uh, the temple or the house. And then the third one where he talks about the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And so one of those is this kind of biological metaphor. Another one is more of an architectural one. The church is like a temple or a house that reaches into the heavens, that connects heavens and earth. And the third is more domestic. The church is like a bride that is married to Jesus Christ. It's like a family that God has put together. And each one of these metaphors conveys something essential about the church, and it shouldn't be lost. But we've spent our time talking solely about the body. When we think about the body, the physical body, Christians uh, get all sorts of emotions start to fly. And I started to get emails and and conversations with people when I started using the term who have had bad experiences with churches in the past. Some of you have come from uh, small dysfunctional churches where there were strong power structures. Two families ran everything or one family till the other one got run out. Uh, and, 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 and you kind of recoiled from that. Others maybe came from strong, high liturgical churches and you'd go, but it just kind of felt like it wasn't connecting for you. Some of you have been hurt or offended by people in your churches, so you kind of retreated. Others have been just bored. Go every Sunday and nothing really connected, nothing made sense. So when I started talking about the body, uh, all of these emotions just started coming to the foreground for you. And uh, you would write or you'd stop me and you'd say, you know, I, I love the word, the language, but I'm just not sure I can get there because of my past experiences. So what I want to do today is to just kind of review everything that I've said. I won't say anything new, but I want to say it maybe in a different way that will help you, some of you, find your place on a map. When we think of the church as a body, a human body, it implies physicality, movement, function, participation, action. George Lyons said, the human body is that piece of the world which we ourselves are and for which we bear responsibility. This is the part of the world that I am and I am responsible for this piece of the world. And when I use this piece of the world in a way that is obedient to Jesus Christ, the gospel takes on a very practical expression. Otherwise, religion is always stuck in the head. It never does anything. It just thinks deep thoughts. So it's important for me to translate what I believe into my physical body. This is why Paul would say, your body 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit in which he dwells. Paul says, you are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your physical bodies. In Romans, he says, I urge you to present your physical body unto God as a living sacrifice. And yet, if you talk to most Christians, we think of the body as being this kind of carcass that we have to drag along behind us in our pursuit of Jesus Christ. I could be so spiritual if it were not for this thing. But in fact, <laughs> what we learn in the birth of Jesus Christ, when God becomes a man, a human, it is possible for this thing to possess the almighty God. I couldn't be spiritual apart from this thing. This body is part of my spiritual worship. So it matters immensely what I do with this. It is my physical expression of my loyalty to Jesus Christ. I'm not as loyal as I say I am unless I translate that by using this body appropriately. That's why obedience is a huge thing, a physical, practical, tangible, visible obedience. Are you there? Yes? Now it's just one of you. Good. But anyone who has a body like this knows that it also uh, is a sign of our limitations. It's a sign of our weakness, uh, it, it, our sickness, our disease, our malfunction, our age. <laughs> and, and so we're always trying to live out this treasure that we have, says Paul, uh, in jars of clay. We've learned from COVID that we are not the only things trying to live in this body. Other things want in too. Viruses, bacteria, malignant cells, parasites. And so just like we work hard to include some things, we must work just as hard to exclude others or the body will get sick. We've learned from science that sometimes the body attacks its own members. If a person has rheumatoid arthritis, the pain, the inflammation, the malfunction of the joints, sometimes the distortion of the body is due to the fact that the body has attacked one of its members as if it were a foreign invader. And when it attacks things that belong to it as if they don't belong to it, it causes tremendous pain in the thing it attacks. And if it gets even worse, 
it starts to distort the appearance of that body. So the part of you that everyone sees before they get to know you has been distorted. When I was 36, I noticed a bald spot on the top of my head a week before Easter. Singing in the choir in the church and went to practice that night and a few of my friends noticed they made jokes. I laughed and thought nothing of it. 30 days later, I looked like this. So I went to see all of the physicians. I saw the allergists. I saw the endocrinologists. I saw the epidemiologists. Uh, and uh, they didn't know what it was. They said it was a stress, which felt like it was my fault. But finally, we learned after going to a few more that what had happened was the white blood cells in my body had attacked the hair follicles as if they were foreign invaders and it stunned them. And when it stuns them, the hair falls out. So in 30 days, I went from a full head of hair uh, to having none at all. About a month after that happened, my appearance had changed dramatically. It was one of the most traumatic things at that time in my life. Uh, I remember sitting with my wife uh, driving through a Taco Bell and I ordered at the thing and, and uh, when I came to get my food, I reached out with the money and the, and the lady reached down to hand me the food and she went like that. And my wife leaned down and said, but he has a really nice personality. Now, where I come from, that ain't a compliment. That's a makeup call. No, what she was saying was, the appearance has changed, and it makes you draw back, but at least he has a really nice personality. It's maybe for reasons like this, that Paul starts to connect the church with the body of Christ. Maybe it's not a metaphor. Maybe it's more. Paul says that the church is his body and he fills all things in every way. Paul says in Colossians that Christ himself is the fullness of God. Chapter 2, verse 9, following verse, and you also, speaking to the church, you also have fullness in him. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into him who is the head that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined together with every ligament, builds itself up in love. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, comma, which is his body and for which he is the Savior. So you hear this from Paul again and again, and when you hear it now, knowing what you know of your physical bodies, 
it starts to come together. Paul implies that each one of us are members, parts in this body of Christ. He implies then that the first part of Christ people see is his body. And so when the appearance of that church starts to change, if it becomes less attractive, he does. Paul implies that churches must include and nurture, feed, and protect the members that belong to them. They must not attack them. They must not cause pain and ruin the parts that God has placed inside of that church. And yet Paul implies that we must get as good at excluding things as we are at including things. Because Christians are not the only ones trying to live inside the church. This is why Paul would tell the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, after I leave, savage wolves will come in from the outside and some from your own number will rise up and distort followers after them. Do you hear it? This is why Paul says to Titus, if a divisive person comes into the body, starting arguments, warn them once, warn them twice, and after that, have nothing to do with them. That is a wildly unpopular message in America today because we, like the Corinthians, want to be inclusive. Yet it has not occurred to us that Christians are not the only ones wanting to get inside the body. We must protect it as often as we feed it. So as I listened to your words and I heard your stories, I noticed that there's often a conflict in our minds between Christ and the church. I put it on this XY chart. This is Christ and this is church. And what I noticed when I put it like this, you guys, was that most of us have one or other kind of relationship with either Christ or the church, and sometimes that relationship evolves over the life of our, of our um, Christianity. On the one hand, there are those who are not really high on Christ or the church. They're, they're Christians, and they're in the church, but there's always some other preoccupation that they have. It's their career, uh, it's their family, it's the next degree, uh, it's this, this body of work that they're trying to put together. They're glad to be forgiven, but really forgiveness was the last thing Jesus 
did for them that they know of. And the church that they attend is kind of boring and not really doing much for them. So while they stay in the church and they claim a, a, a life with Christ, it's something else that's more important. These people are often preoccupied, you'd say, with some other part of their life. In some cases, these people have been disillusioned. They've been hurt by either Christ or the church, and when they are, they sort of abandon both of them, and they just sort of stay moral and religious or traditional, but they're not really passionate about either one of these. Then there are some people who are really high on Christ. He's louder than the church. And these are people that ran into him. They were either in the middle of a storm in their life. And it was Jesus. It wasn't the church. It was Jesus who walked out into the storm. And when he got in their little boat, the wind died down. And they went, he is amazing. Sometimes it's a person who had done a lot of things in their past, like the woman who is caught in adultery. And it was Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't the religious people. They were condemning her. It was Jesus who met her and said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I've seen ministers who were sort of after a moral failure. All the religious leaders sort of turned on them. And like Peter, there was a day when Jesus met them and said, go feed my sheep. Oh, I'm not worthy, but I am worthy, he said. Now go feed my... So what happens is they develop this loyalty to Christ and they sort of remain distant from the church because it was the church that hurt them. So these people are wounded. They love Jesus. He's the only one who hasn't hurt them. But it's those people. I love Jesus. It's just humanity I can't stand. Then there's people in this category who are like zealots. These are people who um, they spend time alone with, with Christ and something Christ said just starts to burn in their heart. And the first thing they do is they want everybody in the church to follow them. So they start trying to make disciples of that cause or mission in the church. And when people in the church don't follow them right away, because, I mean, often they're angry. They're just mad. And when people sort of draw back, then they get really critical of the church. That these people aren't serious about Jesus. They don't want to grow. They're not interested in reaching lost people. They're not trying to develop our community the way Jesus. It's me and Jesus. Got it? You see him? Do you know him? Do you know him? And so everywhere they go, there's a carnage of broken relationships behind them, people wondering what just hit them. And what hit them was just one person with Jesus. Me and my Jesus. 
Then there are people for whom the opposite is true. That's why they gave me an eraser. The church is louder than Christ because it was Christ who disappointed them. There was a time in their life when they needed supernatural power and it didn't come. I prayed, said one, that my that God would heal my little brother and he did not. And so they don't say anything but they start to draw back from Jesus Christ because he has disappointed them. Often, these people, um, well, I can't tell whether it's Jesus that they love or their idea of Jesus that they love. Because the real Jesus uh, got the life beat out of him. John Stott said, I myself could not believe in God were it not for Jesus. Because in Jesus, the worst possible thing happens to the best possible person. And he cries, why have you forsaken me? And does not hear an answer. He dies in silence. And so with this disappointment, they won't leave the community that they've bonded with. So these people sort of become institutional. They're hurt. Sometimes uh, these are second and third or fourth generation church people that they came up in a local church and um, this is the only form of religion they've known, but they don't really have a passionate daily encounter with Jesus. They're really good in theology and they're good at winning arguments and they are passionate about doing something for the world and they're fiercely loyal to their communities, but it has been months since Jesus, the God-man, the one, walked into a room when they were in it. So they're loyal or not. Typically what happens then is people feel, we have got to get this right. We've got to create this middle ground where it is Christ is equal to the church. I will be in Christ uh, and I will be with the church. Both. Both. 
But what we hear in the New Testament is something even bigger. It's the language of in. There is Christ. There is his church. And Christ is in his church like he is in nothing else. And the church is in Christ. Or it's just a nonprofit organization. Now, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is written to a group of people that are literally all over this map. There's a lot of people coming to little house churches. It's not a building like this. And as far as I know, there's only one. In the book of Corinthians, the Americans haven't showed up yet. So there's not hundreds of denominations. There may not even be two or three churches. There might just be one household church, Stephanus. And if the research is right, the number's between 30 and 40. If there's another one, it's somewhere else in the city. This is a large city, and Christians are gathering in little households, not in big buildings like this one. And the people that gather, because it's an open community, are coming from all over. So we have people that gather that are very preoccupied with other parts of their life. But this is an interesting community, and so they come. And yet there are people that gather who are passionate about Jesus Christ, but they're not much interested in the church. And so they exercise freedom that they have in Christ. Well, Christ has set me free. I can do what I want. But they're not remembering that whatever they do is done inside of a body of human beings and there are social consequences to your freedom. So Paul is saying it isn't just you and Jesus. It's you, Jesus, through the body. You can't get to Jesus apart from the body. So you have to remember this Flawed, broken, old, diseased, sometimes ugly body that is Christ. And, and then there's people that are legalistic, they're locked in the traditions. And in the sacraments, and they're abusing them, not even knowing that in the midst of every sacrament is the risen Christ himself. This does not occur to them. And Paul comes to the Corinthians in chapter 12, and he says a few things that start to help us find our place inside a church that is terribly flawed like this one or the one you came from. The first thing Paul says to us is that membership in this body is not optional. It's already happened. 
And that's a big discovery because most of the time as Americans, we tend to subjectivize membership and think that we are members when we feel like we belong. Or if the church has created a pathway for membership, well, then we can belong. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that we were all baptized by one spirit and given one spirit to drink. Some of us are Jews and some Gentiles, and some are slave and some are free. You don't know of any social category in America today as divisive as that between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. That was a massive shift. And Paul coming in and saying, it does not matter your ideology or your past experiences or backgrounds, all of those things that you keep bringing with you into the body don't matter. You were immersed by one spirit, and so you've been placed inside the body. So the question is not whether or not you belong, you do, because that was done by Jesus Christ. It was not done by the church or by you. This is why Paul would say in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong, listen to the language, the foot would not for that reason cease to belong. So even if the foot says, I don't belong, it still belongs. Because belonging isn't up to the foot. It's up to Christ. And Christ has put you inside of a terribly flawed community. That's the way it is. From there, Paul says, he put you there with a function. Not a role, not a position, not a program. You have a function. When you gather into your little community, ugly as it may seem, you are there for the purpose of the larger community. It's the body that determines the function. That's why Paul says, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, where would the hearing be? If we do not fulfill our functions, the body can hear. So it's essential that we learn our functions by looking at other people. If your question to this is, where is the program or do I have permission the answer is, of course you have permission and there probably isn't a program. You don't need permission and you don't need a program to perform the function. Churches in America today get way too high on institutional roles that we have assigned to individuals and elevated by putting them in certain places others cannot go. So the American church has created a list of MVPs and then everybody else. And we are wrong about that. In Paul's mind, he says, the ministry is scattered throughout the body and so is the power. 
And whenever someone sees a need in the body and he or she jumps to meet that need, the body is performing appropriately. If it waits for permission, something is flawed. So the way to do this is to start gathering with your community with more lateral vision. As you form relationships with people around you, in the context of those relationships, information will arise. And as that information becomes available to you, respond. Do whatever is needed. The tendency of a room full of professionals like College Church is that we like to function within our strength because we don't like to be bad at anything. And we like there to be a certain amount of ease involved in the function. So we tend to do things that are hobbies, things we can do with less effort. But if we limit our service to things that only come easy, then we are limiting our potential influence in the help of the body. Finally, says Paul, there are weaker members in the body and you must, you must bring them into the center and there are those that seem to be in the center and you must let them be. There's a certain amount of submission is needed for you to live in a flawed and imperfect church. You can become critical and distant, condescending, bitter. But if you leave it, bad as it is, if you leave it, You cannot live in Christ for long. For he is not separate from his body, however distorted that body may be. If you want your little community to change, you will have to stay in it. It will be hard there will be conversations that seem to you very awkward. And there will be things that you insist upon that you will lose. But if you stay in it long enough over time, with your influence, God will begin to bend that body. So it becomes more and more like the risen Christ himself. So how has your walk with God, do you see it? How has your history of the church sort of evolved? <laughs> this was me in my teenage years, and then this is me uh, in my 30s. I'm going to save the church. Jesus and me will save them. <laughs> and uh, then I started serving the church and my love for him grew cold. 
in my late 30s, maybe. Now, uh, now that I'm 39, I realize that the church is going to save me. It is. It is. The church is not a container where Christians just sort of gather every seven days. And it's not just a servant of Christ. It's not his boy. It's his body. It's how he gets things done in this world. And if I stay in it, the body has the power to strengthen me and knock off of me all of those things unlike him. What's the greatest threat to the church? As you see it, if you were to have a conversation with a few people, uh, what is it that you fear for the church right now? This passion and says, this is the thing that we, I, and leave personalities out of it. Don't mention names. But what is the thing that maybe you would say is the greatest threat in this church? Without this, it'd be so much better. And is there anything that you know right now or can do right now to mitigate that? Some of you feel very deeply about inclusiveness. So in addition to speaking to the power, which some of you love to do, you can actually include. You can actually open your home and let people unlike you into that home. Some of you speak on generosity. And before you control the budget, control yours. You give it away. Some of you speak and love to talk about integrity. Honor your marriage and your vows. It starts there. And third, is there a passion in your life that, uh, boy, God has given me a burden for the church right now, and yet it's been so long since you've really known what to do. Maybe if you got with a couple of others and you said, I, I've got this burden, but I don't know the next step, maybe they could help you identify one simple step you could take. I want to close by reading the prayer of Jesus Christ over the disciples. <laughs> Prayed by Jesus just before one betrayed him and another denied him. And the third one said, show us the Father. That group, Jesus prayed, my prayer, Father, is not just for the 12. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. 
that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you've loved them just as you have loved me. Righteous Father, the world does not know you. I know you and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them just as I am in them.